If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14 as we continue looking at this great chapter of Scripture in which our Lord tells us so many great and wonderful things. We'll be looking at the last several verses of the chapter beginning in verse 25. We'll be reading John 14, 25 down through the end of the chapter. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts Be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded. Get up. Let us go from here. As we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under three main points. First of all, the gifts of Jesus. Gifts of Jesus. And secondly, Jesus Christ is both equal to the Father and inferior to him. Jesus Christ is both equal to the Father and inferior to Him. And number three, Satan has no dirt on Jesus. Now as we have been working our way through chapter 14 these past few weeks, we've seen how Jesus is seeking to comfort and encourage the disciples in the midst of all of the dark clouds that were overshadowing them. And we see more of the same here in the closing verses of chapter 14. And So first let's look at the the gifts of of Christ, which he promises, the gift of the Spirit and the gift of peace. And so Jesus speaks several times of the Holy Spirit in this discourse that that stretches from really chapter 13 up through uh, chapter 16, or perhaps chapter 14 through 16, depending on how you want to divide it up. But the point is Jesus speaks several times of the Spirit, refers to him as another helper, counselor, advocate, who would be with them forever, the Spirit of truth. We Saw last week that Jesus said that the Spirit who had abided with them would be in them. And here Jesus speaks more specifically about the role of the Spirit and what that entails in verse 26. The Father would send the Spirit in the name of the Son. You see the the whole Trinity right there. The Father was going to send the Spirit in the name of the Son. And what would the Spirit do? Jesus says, He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now here, just as an aside, let me throw out that it is worth mentioning that John uses the masculine singular pronoun in reference to the Spirit. In other words, he is a very literal and right translation. I just want to point out two things in this respect. First, that the Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person, a person of the Holy Trinity, The personal pronoun implies that he is a person. And secondly, it is the masculine pronoun that is used. Obviously, God is a spirit. We must never seek to 
make God into our own image. And we must never suppose that the divine nature is male in the human sense as we understand it. But we also need to be clear that despite the title of a book that was published this year, God is not a black woman. We also need to be clear that God is not a white man either. Far be it from us to imagine anything of the sort. God is a spirit. But although he is a spirit, we must not ignore the way in which he has revealed himself. The one true and living God has revealed himself as God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The masculine pronoun is applied to all three. He has not revealed himself as mother, daughter, and feminine spirit. This is not how God has spoken to us about himself, and neither must we speak this way about him. Again, he is not a man. He's not a woman either. And so let's not be weird or unbiblical in how we think or speak about God. Let there be no identity politics in our doctrine and thinking about God. Let God be God and let us receive with reverence and faith and true humility the truth which he has revealed to us concerning himself. And so then, enough on, enough on the aside, what does Jesus tell us here about the Spirit? He tells us that the Holy Spirit is a teacher of God's people. The fact that he teaches all things certainly doesn't mean that we'll become omniscient and know everything. Certainly not. What he means is that the Spirit would teach the disciples all of the truths which Jesus himself had spoken to the disciples throughout the course of his ministry. Though the disciples had heard the words of Jesus when he spoke them, we know that they certainly didn't always understand what he had said. The Spirit then would both bring to their memory the things which they had heard but forgotten and would help them to rightly understand and apply those things, as well as the things that they had heard and remembered but had not understood. The Spirit was sent to teach them and to bring to mind those things which Christ had taught them. And indeed, Jesus goes on to say later on in this discourse that he had more to say to them than they were able at that point to bear. The Spirit himself brings them and guides them into all truth. And the Spirit does the same for us as well. It is the Holy Spirit who not only convicts and convinces us of the truth when we are first converted to Christ, the Spirit continues to teach and to explain to our hearts the truth of the Scriptures and therefore the implications of the Scriptures also so that we may faithfully live for Christ here in this world. He brings to our minds those truths of Scripture which we have forgotten and that we need to remember. The Spirit is a great gift of Christ to his people. And the second gift that we find here is the gift of peace. Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And what Jesus says here, near the very end of the verse, is the exact note, isn't it, upon which chapter 14 had begun. He said back in chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. This is all tied together. Jesus is, is trying to bring the disciples comfort and encouragement and strength. He's trying to build them up and to keep them from having troubled and fearful hearts. And so he promises here to give them peace. What kind of peace is this? It is peace with God. 
and then being at peace with God. They can have peace within their own consciences by Christ's death upon the cross for our sins and his resurrection three days later for our justification. We are brought into a position where we are at peace with God. The enmity that had existed between us and God is done away with. We find in Romans 5.1 that therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is called the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6.15 The gospel brings us into peace with God and because we have peace with God we have peace within our own hearts and being at peace with God and with our, within our own hearts we can also be at peace with the rest of God's people. All those who are in Christ are reconciled to God by one body through the cross. The enmity between Jew and Gentile is broken down through Christ. And being at peace with God, having our sins forgiven, we recognize that our biggest problem is dealt with. And therefore also that we can trust God for the remainder of things that may serve to trouble us. Right? There are plenty of troublesome things in this world. But being at peace with God, knowing that our sins are forgiven, and knowing that God is sovereign and reigns over all, we can trust him. Much as Paul counseled us to do in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, when he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Obviously, this doesn't mean that The difficulties that we face will automatically go away. They won't. But it does mean that even in the trials, whatever they may be, God's peace, which we cannot fully comprehend, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Christ gives to us and leaves us with peace that is unlike anything this world can give. He says, not as the world gives do I give unto you. The world doesn't give it. The world cannot take it away either. The enmity between us and God is taken away once for all. And now, as those in Christ, we can rest in the confidence that all things are ultimately working together for our good. Even if it doesn't appear that way on the surface. Nevertheless, this is the promise of the Word of God. And we know that in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And this, then, is the peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. Having peace with God and peace in our own heart serves to to guard us, to keep us, to aid us in our perseverance in the faith and in our just general coping with life as well. Jesus says here, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace is a great blessing, and this is why we heard from Isaiah 57 this morning, The Lord says, Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Again, this is peace that the world can't give. Only Christ can give this kind of peace. But the corollary is that there's no peace for the wicked. And so... If you're here this morning and you have no peace, this means that you need Jesus. You need to come to him in faith and repentance and be brought into peace with God and into this peace of conscience which only Christ can bring. And so look to Jesus in faith today. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more 
about how you can have peace with God through Christ. And if you are a believer in Christ and you're here this morning, let me ask you this. What do you know of this peace? Are you troubled this morning about anything? I know there are no shortage of troubling circumstances in the world. And knowing you personally, I know that some of you have troubling circumstances in your lives. I've certainly had troubling circumstances in my life. And so when we're facing these things, we need to be responsible and upright in whatever the circumstances are, but we also need to remember to trust the Lord in these circumstances. We have to to pour out our hearts to him in prayer and trust him. We have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, as Paul says. And so this morning, our Lord says to you, whatever your circumstances are, he says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And if you're here this morning and you are tempted to be troubled or fearful, or if you are, in fact, troubled and fearful, I would encourage you to take the words of Psalm 42:11 to your lips and to, to speak to yourself as the psalmist did when he said, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that your greatest problem is that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. When troubling circumstances are combating us, we're apt to, to listen to ourselves, and we need to, to stand up and actually talk to ourselves and take the words of Scripture. Why are you in despair, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And this brings us then to our second point, that... Jesus Christ is both equal to the Father and inferior to him. In verse 28, Jesus says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now what should we do with this? How can Jesus say this? Our Jesus, who is one with the Father, who is the Word, who was... In the beginning, who was with God and was God. How can Jesus say this? What does he mean by it? And why did he say it? How is God the Father greater than Jesus Christ? Well, what we must certainly not say is what the heretical creed drawn up by the Council of Sirmium in the year 357 said. The creed of that council said, For it can be doubtful to none that the Father is greater than the Son in honor, dignity, splendor, majesty, and in the very name of Father, the Son himself testifying, He who sent me is greater than I. And no one is ignorant that it is Catholic doctrine that there are two persons of the Father and the Son, and that the Father is greater and the Son subordinated to the Father, together with all those things which the Father has subjected to himself. And we can't say that. There's a reason why the 4th century theologian and Bishop Hilary of Portier called that creed the blasphemy that was lately written at Sirmium. Because it's blasphemous to say and believe such things of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. There have been biblical and orthodox creeds, and there have been unbiblical and heretical creeds. And the creed of Sirmium is a heretical one. Hilary commented on that creed, 
In saying that the Father was greater in honor, dignity, splendor, and majesty, they implied that the Son lacked those things which constitute the Father's superiority. This is why to say such a thing is blasphemous. According to John 5.23, we are bound to honor the Son as we honor the Father. And indeed, he who fails to honor the Son does not honor the Father. Is what Jesus says to us there. And so we mustn't say that or anything of the sort. So what can be said? Well, first we need to consider what is obvious and orthodox concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we need to think about the context uh, that is going on here in John 14. And so first, what is obvious and orthodox concerning our Lord Jesus Christ? First and foremost, he is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is one with the Father, as he says in John 10.30. Indeed, he can say "Have you uh, that, that to see him was to see the Father. Right? That's, that's what he said earlier here in chapter 14 to Philip. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Jesus uh, is in the Father. The Father is in him. They are one. And John tells us that uh, the Jews understood that when Jesus called God his Father... That he was making himself equal with God. That's what John says in John 5.18. And and the Jews were right in this. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And if you read uh, as John chapter 5 continues on, Jesus makes it very clear that yes, this is what I am saying. That I am equal with God. Isaiah of old had prophesied that the child who would be born to us, the son given to us, would be called mighty God. He's called mighty God because he is mighty God. Paul says in Philippians 2.6 that he existed in the form of God. The same apostle calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13. And Peter says much the same, 2 Peter 1.1. Revelation 5.13 shows all creation worshiping the Father and the Son together in these words. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The conclusion is clear. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God. And yet, it is also true, our Lord Jesus Christ is also truly man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We find in Hebrews chapter 2 that he himself partook of flesh and blood and that He had to be made like his brethren in all things in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So our Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. And in becoming man, he who was the Son of God, co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father from all of eternity, who did not think it robbery to be made equal with God because he was in fact God, This Son of God emptied himself, as we find in Philippians 2.7. What does that mean, that he emptied himself? Well, it doesn't mean that he somehow got rid of his deity. He could not un-God himself. He's divine. He is the Son of God from all of eternity. It would be impossible for him to become less than God. But he did empty himself. So how did he do it? He did it, as Paul said he did it, by taking the form of a servant. 
by being made in the likeness of men and by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. By taking into himself a, a human nature, by taking into his divine person the human nature and therefore being one person with two natures, the divine and the human, he was emptying himself and coming into a state of humiliation. The words of the theologian W.G.T. Shatter, somewhat helpful when he said, when the second person in the Trinity agrees to take the place of a mediator between the Trinity and rebellious mankind, he agrees to be commissioned and sent upon a lowly errand. He consents to take a secondary place. This was the covenant among the members of the Trinity that the Son of God would become a man, that he would empty himself and become a servant. As the God-man, therefore, our Lord Jesus submitted himself to God the Father. He obeyed the Father in everything. He submitted not only to the Jewish law of the Old Testament and obeyed it perfectly, but he submitted himself to all of the suffering that was to come upon him throughout the course of his entire life, which, of course, culminated in him going to the cross. Now, this is what is both obvious and orthodox concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to the second thing that we need to consider, which is the context of John 14. Think of where we're at in terms of the life of Jesus. This is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus is trying to strengthen and comfort the disciples with the truth about who he is and what he will do for them and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the peace that he gives them, and so on. He says to them here in verse 28, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This is Christ speaking in his state of humiliation, his state in which he had emptied himself and had submitted himself to all the indignities of the incarnation and to all of the suffering that had come upon him as the suffering servant. And as it was under those conditions, Christ had to deal with a lot of bad stuff, right? He had a treacherous disciple who had just gone out to betray him. His soul was troubled as he anticipated what the next several hours held in store for him. He knew that he was going to suffer and die. And so he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. God the Father was not in a state of humiliation. The Father was reigning above in eternal blessedness and glory, free from all pain and indignity and sorrow. This was not the condition of the Son at that time. He was in the state of humiliation. He was in agony as he thought about what the future held for him. If you think about the, his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood as he anticipated, bearing the weight of our sins upon the cross. Jesus is saying here that if they really loved him, they would be rejoicing that Jesus is going to the Father because going to the Father meant leaving all of this behind, all of the suffering that was part and parcel of the state of humiliation. Jesus going to the Father would be the fulfillment, the answer to Christ's prayer that he prayed in John 17, 5, when he prayed to the Father, glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ was ever blessed and ever glorious, but he emptied himself by becoming a man. And he says, Father, glorify me again to this position 
which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Returning to the Father meant returning to blessedness and glory in heaven. Returning to the Father meant the exaltation of Christ. Jesus was anticipating the joy that was set before him. The joy of being exalted to the right hand of the Father, which would come after he had submitted himself to God the Father all the way to the point of death. And so when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he is not saying that the Father is greater with respect to deity, but rather he's speaking in his position as the incarnate son with a human nature in a state of humiliation, a state in which he had emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The Father is greater in the sense that the Father did no such thing. The Father did not take to himself the form of a servant and was not made in the likeness of men. The Athanasian Creed speaks truly when it says that the Son of God is equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. And though the manhood of Christ remains to all of eternity, Jesus never goes back on the incarnation. He remains man, one blood with us. Nevertheless, his state of humiliation has now ended. He was raised from the dead, victorious over the grave. He has ascended into heaven and is now seated and exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And thus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 10, and 11. Or we sing about it in the hymn. We say, Jesus takes... The highest station, oh, what joy the sight affords. Crown him, crown him, king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus says in verse 29 that he's told them of these things so that when the event occurs, they may believe. He was, as it were, prophesying the event beforehand so as to strengthen their faith when the event did occur. And it did occur. Jesus did depart to go to be with the Father. And when the ascension occurred, they could look back And remember how Jesus had told them this was going to happen. Their faith could be strengthened and they could rejoice in the knowledge that Christ's state of humiliation had now come to an end. Christ had triumphed over suffering and death in the grave and had returned to the glory of the Father and had been glorified and exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the reason why Christ was glorified and exalted to the right hand of the Father, the reason why he was triumphant over Satan and sin and death is because Satan had no dirt on Jesus. And that's our third point for this morning, that Satan had no dirt on Jesus. Now, what does this mean? When we speak of someone having dirt on someone else, we're speaking of someone knowing something bad about them, right? Maybe knowing some deep, dark secret, maybe having something on them which they can exploit for nefarious purposes, something with which they can blackmail them. You, you get the point. But Satan had no dirt on Jesus, and that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 30 when he says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Jesus was not going to speak much more with them because his death was near at hand, right around the corner. Because the ruler of this world, who is the devil, was coming and was going to execute his designs against Christ. 
The serpent was just about to bruise Christ's heel. But that was all that he could do, simply to bruise Christ's heel. He could not crush Christ's head. And the reason that he could only bruise Christ's heel was because he had nothing in Christ. He had no dirt on him. He had nothing upon which he could attach a rightful claim against Christ. Any and all accusations against Jesus would fall to the ground. Jesus could say to the Jews in John 8, 46, which one of you accuses me of sin? None of the accusations of the Jews could stick to Christ because he was without sin and he boldly puts himself forward. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, if I were to do that, um, I guarantee my wife could convict me of sin. If you were to put yourself forward and say, which one of you convicts me of sin? I'm sure somebody could. I might not be able to point to anything specific, but I'm sure somebody could. But not so of Christ. He can say, which one of you accuses me of sin? And if none of the accusations of the Jews could stick, certainly none of the accusations of Satan, which he might bring against Christ if he should have even attempted such a thing, none of those would stick either. The ruler of this world had nothing in Christ. Now, Satan is called the ruler of the world, not because he is in any way sovereign over it. He's not. Satan is called the ruler of this world because he has come in and has taken to himself that which was rightfully God's. He is a usurper, if you will. He came into the garden, deceived Adam and Eve. Well, he deceived Eve, and Adam followed with eyes wide open. And as a result, the human race has fallen into the snare of the devil and has been held captive by him to do his will. Now, Paul speaks that way about specific individuals, 2 Timothy 2.26, that they have uh, fallen into the snare of the devil and been held captive by him to do his will. And I think that, broadly speaking, we can apply that principle uh, to fallen mankind in general. Satan is the ruler of the world because he rules in the hearts of fallen and sinful men and women. And even if the men and women of the world serve him unwittingly, as I dare say most of them do, nevertheless, he rules within their hearts and they serve him voluntarily. They are part of his realm, which is called the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13. Similarly, John says, 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In that sense, Satan is the ruler of the world. And he is, as Revelation 12, 10 puts it, the accuser. He accuses believers. He seeks their downfall and their demise. And likewise, he sought the downfall and demise of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read those verses from Revelation 12, this morning, which give us, as it were, a snapshot view of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his, his earthly ministry. The woman there in Revelation 12, we were told, was to give birth to a child, a male child, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then that child was caught up to God and his throne. This is speaking of Christ. Now, the details of his ministry are not given to us there, but we read of his birth and ultimately of his ascension to God and his throne. These are kind of the bookends, if you will, of Jesus' earthly life, his birth and his ascension. And we're told of the malice of Satan against him, how the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. But what happened? The child was not devoured. He was kept safe. His earthly mission was successful, and he was caught up to God and his throne. The malice of Satan was not successful, but it was real, nevertheless. He wanted to devour Christ.
Christ. He attempted his designs against Christ, of course, in the the temptations of Christ at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He came away empty-handed, but nevertheless, he continued to come after Christ. And praise God, he continued to come away empty-handed. And here in John 14, things were, were ratcheting up and coming to a head rather quickly. Satan was at that time working his one final push to get Jesus. He had put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, as you find in John 13, 2. Satan had entered into Judas, as you find in John 13, 27. Jesus says here, the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus knows that Satan, Satan was coming after him. But, thanks be to God, the ruler of this world had nothing in him. No accusation could stick. Jesus had no sin for which he must die. All plots against the Messiah are in vain, just as Psalm 2 says they are. We sang about that. Why do the Gentile nations rage and their useless plots design? Kings of earth and schemes engage. Rulers are in league combined. They speak out against the Lord, his Messiah. They defy According to the apostles in Acts chapter 4, that is exactly what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were doing when they crucified Jesus. They were engaged in this, this plot, futile plot, but a plot nonetheless against the Messiah. And if the ungodly of this world were doing such a thing, then surely they were doing it, the bidding, they were doing it at the bidding of Satan himself, who is the ruler of this world. And this holds true even if they were doing Satan's bidding unwittingly. The ruler of the world was coming. He was coming to do the worst that he could to Jesus. But he had no dirt on Jesus. There was nothing upon which he could lay hold of in order to get Jesus condemned. The Jews and the Gentiles and Herod and Pontius Pilate could only crucify Jesus and kill him on the cross. They did that, but they could not destroy him. They could not destroy our Jesus. The ruler of the world is coming, but he has nothing in me. They could not force Jesus to remain dead. And in the irony of it all, and this is truly wonderful and beautiful, the irony of it all is that in trying to destroy Jesus in this way, Satan actually destroyed himself. In his attempt against Jesus, he was able to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he got his own head stomped. In the process, the death blow against Satan was struck by Christ in his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. It was through the cross that Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, as we find in Colossians 2.15. It was through death that Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, as we find in Hebrews 2.14 and 15. The ruler of the world had nothing in Christ. And thus, in his resurrection, it was made clear, as he says in verse 31, that he loved the Father, that he did exactly as the Father had commanded him. His sinlessness and his obedience were manifested in his resurrection. Christ was vindicated. The ruler of the world had nothing in him. And the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is that for all who repent and believe In him, Satan has no dirt on them either. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the ruler of the world 
has nothing in you now either. Now I realize there may be some who think that in saying that I am saying more than I have warrant to say. You and I both know and agree that we are sinners, that we're conceived and born in original sin, that we have perpetrated innumerable acts of wickedness against God. It is true. There's no denying it, no way around it. We know that we were dead in trespasses and sins and that we walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. As sinners, we had earned the wages of our condemnation. We had earned eternal death for ourselves. Now, on all of this, we agree. And yet, I say to you again, if you are in Christ, the ruler of this world has nothing in you. The accuser of the brethren may accuse you, but the charges won't stick. Satan has no dirt on you. Now, the dirt was there. But if you are in Christ, the dirt, praise God, is gone. This is the whole point of what Paul is saying in Romans 8 when he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the flesh could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And this is what he means later on in that same chapter when he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, also intercedes for us. Beloved friend, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old really has gone. The new really has come. And so Christian, rejoice in Jesus Christ this morning for who he is as the eternal Son of God, equal to the Father, as touching His Godhead, and yet inferior to the Father, as touching His manhood. And in that manhood, He was made for a little while lower than the angels. He was subjected to humiliation and shame. But now, because of the suffering of death, He is crowned with glory and honor, as we find in Hebrews 2.9. And so rejoice in who Christ is, and therefore rejoice in what Christ has accomplished for you in that he has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. As Paul says in Colossians 2, there were plenty of decrees against us, but glory be to Christ, they are gone. They're taken out of the way. The ruler of the world who had nothing in Christ now has nothing in you either, if you are in Christ. And as a recipient then of such great mercy and grace, What must you do? You must yield your entire life to serve and honor Christ, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him who was a dying sacrifice for you. And if you're here this morning and you have never yet trusted in Christ, I want you to know that in your case, the filth of your sins still remains on you. And worse than having Satan as your adversary and him having dirt on you, you stand condemned before an almighty and holy God who will one day judge the earth. God is the one you need to fear because he is the one who judges. He is the one who condemns. And if you want to be freed from condemnation, you need to come to Christ. There's no other way to the Father than but by him. You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. And this is found only in Jesus and his atoning death on the cross. So turn away from your sins today and believe in Jesus Christ. 
The gospel we proclaim truly is good news. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious truths here concerning Christ. We praise you, Father, for who he was as our suffering servant and what he has accomplished for us because the ruler of the world had nothing in him. He has accomplished so great a redemption and salvation for us. We stand before you completely justified. We give great and hearty thanks to you, our great God. We ask that you would help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight by the power of your Holy Spirit. We praise you for the great gift of the Spirit. We give thanks to you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.